You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, as we begin Advent, we begin a new sermon series. And the amazing thing about Advent is that it comes every year. It's the beginning of the Christian calendar, which means, to me at least, that we have an opportunity to revisit the basics We have an opportunity to go back again to the very beginning, to the reset of the Christian calendar and pray for a reset of our own lives. What a great season, four weeks, to see if we might lay fresh hold of the grasp of the grace of Jesus Christ in our own lives. That's my prayer for myself and it's my prayer for you as well. So we begin a sermon series called Reset. And what better place to go for such a series than to look at the one text that all four gospel writers reference as they begin the story of Jesus. As those who knew Jesus help us interpret his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, uh, all of them turn to this text, so shall we, for these next four weeks. And the passage is Isaiah 40. I would invite you to open up your Bible, if you brought one, to Isaiah 40 or the Pew Bible to page 581. Our text this morning is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. And if you are able, would you stand with me and let's read God's word aloud together. Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley should be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Adventist, as I say, is coming towards us. What's coming towards us is the glory of the Lord. And Advent is a fresh opportunity for us to lay hold of that glory, to believe in that glory, to let that glory, the glory of the Lord, define our lives. We'll look at this coming glory as represented to us in this sacred text through three headings. Uh, The first is the recipients of glory. The second is the recognition of glory. And finally, the substance of glory. First, the recipients of glory. Here we see that the good news of Jesus Christ is not set, but it really is reset. You see, the glory of the Lord is revealed most surprisingly in this passage In Babylon, Babylon, 
Really? Last night, checked the Bible. Jerusalem was the sacred city. Babylon? Yes, the prophet tells us, all flesh, all people shall see the glory of the Lord as it's revealed to all people. And if that means uh, uh, all people can see it, it means the people in Babylon can see it. The glory of the Lord has already been revealed in Jerusalem. It's already been revealed where you and I would most expect to see it, and that is in the temple, in the sacred place, in the place of holiness. Isaiah the prophet saw it uh, firsthand for himself. And the year was 739 B.C. This was the call of Isaiah. Somehow in a vision, Isaiah is transported into the very presence of the Lord. He sees him sitting high and lifted up in a great cosmic temple. He's on a throne and the ether is filled with smoke and brilliance. There are angelic beings who are crying out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What an amazing picture of the holiness of God. God's glory is revealed in the temple, and that's just exactly where you would expect it to be revealed, where everything is done as God prescribes, where it is His holy nature that dictates. And so it's most surprising, it's most troubling, that the glory of the Lord should be revealed, not in Jerusalem, but in Babylon. As we read this book, this great book of Isaiah, there's a major transition between chapter 39 and chapter 40. The gap between these two chapters is as many as a thousand years apart, miles apart, excuse me, and 150 years in time. Because it was in 739 that in the 8th century that Isaiah receives his call. Now these words in chapter 40 seem addressed to those in exile. Those who are in the 6th century uh, begin to be called back to uh, their faith in God. So it is to Babylon, to a people who are in exile, that these words are given by the Lord. Hundreds of years later, when all you have left now is not a temple, there is no temple. You hardly even have uh, Jerusalem as it lay in rubbles. You hardly even have a people of God as they've been scattered across the face of the earth. That whole thing that is the story of the Bible now is coming to a screeching halt because everything seems dissipated. And it is at this point in time, and it is to people who are in exile, even people who are in Babylon, that the glory of the Lord comes. These are the recipients. Friends, to be in exile means to have lived life poorly. To have lost your way. To have lost your God. To suspect that maybe God has even lost you. You see, the people who were in exile were there because though God had given them a brilliant plan for their life, God had described for them in all of its beauty a holy city, Zion, in Jerusalem. They had said, I think I have a better plan. They fancied themselves architect of a a different way of of living life. Instead of living the life that God had offered to them in His grace, they decided to live the life of their own construction and laid out their own building, their own city. And the name of that city, as it turns out, will be Babylon. 
There we find the emptiness of all of our strategies. There we find ourselves alienated from ourselves, from our God, from all of our hopes. If the good news were just set, it would not be offered to those in exile who have utterly failed in their ability to live life. It would not be sent to those whose families have been broken apart, who find themselves disillusioned by patterns of behavior that trouble even them, though they recur in their life. People who don't know what to do with injustice when they see it and find themselves awkwardly complicit in those very same systems that horrify them when they watch the news. If, if the good news of Jesus Christ were set, then the word would be, get your life together. But it is not. It is reset, and it comes to those who have no capacity to reorder their lives. In the Atlantic Monthly last year, there was an interesting article about uh, a scholar at Harvard who has done one of the longest longitudinal studies of, uh, of human behavior. I mean, imagine if you, if you could start your life with the best of advantages from the very best position. And then imagine if you could be smart enough to make every decision just the way it should be made, to avoid every pitfall that's out there. Imagine how brilliant your life would be, how whole and perfect your marriage, your relationships, your career would be. And so this professor, George Viant, undertook to study the lives of 265 men enrolled at Harvard University in the late 1930s. See, they've been given every opportunity. And they were smart people. And so George Vine said, well, what happens if we studied their lives over a 72-year period and continuing to learn what we could, the rest of us could learn, right? Imagine how we could live our lives with this kind of a plan, with these resources. But what's so interesting as the interviewer interacts with uh, Professor Viant, you see that the things that he's learned are interesting but they haven't necessarily helped him, the researcher, live his life. And the one who has been closest to this research, who has interviewed and checked in with these men every year of their lives to see what decisions they had made, what the consequences were, this man himself has some of the deepest penetrating questions of, of his own life, of failed relationships, of disappointments, of ending up in a very different place than he thought he would end up. The glory of the Lord comes to those who are in exile who are not living plan A, plan B, or plan C, but who find ourselves living somewhere around Q. <laughs> the problem is that so many of us think of our lives like a board game that uh, we used to play with our kids called Shoots and Ladders. You know, <laughs> you know that game? Kind of a fun game, but sort of scary when you think about it as a model for life. You, you've got this board, and it's got a bunch of ladders, and... The object is to get to the top of the board. And uh, unfortunately, there are squares at the end of the ladder. If you land on the square, you slip, you're also at the top of a slide. It's a chute, and you just go down back to where you started. And, and, and the idea that some of us have about our lives is as long as you keep climbing, and as long as somehow you avoid those spots that would take you back, you know, you can get to the top. You just, you just have to be smart enough. You just have to be skilled enough. You can keep doing it. So set your life in the right way. No, no. The glory of the Lord is that which comes to those outside of the temple, out in the field, out even in Babylon, in places of exile. But the question is, if the glory of the Lord will come to all 
as the text tells us. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it. Will all people recognize it when it's revealed? See, it's one thing to see the glory of the Lord, but it's another thing to recognize it as glory. The problem is that glory is not an absolute concept. So now we move number two to the recognition of glory. And what you recognize as glory is not necessarily the same thing that I recognize as glory. Glory, the biblical word, uh, even in the way that it occurs in the, in the biblical narratives, demonstrates that it's, it's really a relative concept. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for glory it literally means heavy. Because the idea is that in the ancient Near East, a person who was great was a person who was heavy with wealth. Their their riches made them substantial people in the community. So it was the ancient Israelite community that understood glory in terms of wealth. In the New Testament, the word that's usually used for glory is the word for opinion or to think. And it develops the meaning of glory because after Alexander the Great and the Hellenization of, of Europe and Central Asia, what is really great isn't so much wealth, it's fame. It's your reputation. It's what people think of you. And so you're glorious if you have a great reputation. You see how these two different societies, these two different cultures have, have come up with a different idea of what is really great, of what we should call glorious. And the truth is that every culture, every society, every community has its own implicit understanding of greatness. Well, nobody tells you this is what's really great. But if you grow up in that community, you just get a sense of it. You just begin to value it. Whether you choose to do so or not, it becomes implicit in your life. And so I, I suspect, you know, that if we go to a small town in, in Texas, we might find glory to find something like the quarterback of the high school football team. You know, that Friday night game, there's, there's glory on display. Or if we were to go to New York City, we might find glory to find something in the office of a hedge fund manager. That's truly glorious in that community. In a prison, glory can be defined by your rap sheet, right? Uh, in Los Angeles, glory is defined by your physical beauty. In Seattle, I don't know, perhaps glory is defined by a successful entrepreneur. Look at what she's done. And so every community has its own notion of, of what is great. And the question is, will we recognize God's notion of what is great? This is why so often the Bible seems just irrelevant to us. It's because we have our sense of what greatness is. And we say, God, give me power, give me wealth, give me beauty, give me success, give me health, give me all these things. And God's going, why? I've got another idea altogether of what is great. And it's aligning our view of what is great to God's that makes all the difference in our life. Leslie Newbegin points out that even though in the Enlightenment, we think we choose our own beliefs, that they are really socially constructed in large measure. He says, even the scientists, take the scientist, for example. The scientist, no scientist deduces her first principles. She always stands on the shoulders of a community of scientists who have gone before. There is a scientific tradition, and her work is beholden to that tradition, much of which she is consciously taken in through her mentors and, and through her, her studies, her reading, but much of which is also forming her subconsciously. And Lubigan says, well, the theologian is no different. A Christian is just the same. Yes, 
Our faith, our beliefs are shaped by a community. We stand in a tradition, and, but everybody does. There's nobody who just says, I think I'll believe this, and so I do. That is a fiction of the Enlightenment. So why am I saying all this? Because the interesting thing here is to note is that God is giving the people in exile a script, a story to tell. Scholars for millennium actually have puzzled over the imperatives at the beginning of this text. In chapter 40, we read uh, three imperatives, comfort, comfort, and then speak. What we don't notice in English is that they are plural imperatives. If we came from the South, we would say they're all y'all. And the King James puts in there ye, you know, as a plural to, to signify that God is not giving a script to an individual. He's not calling forth a prophet in particular who is giving this message, which is his normal mode of operation. He is giving this message to a community. The people of God are to say this to themselves. Comfort. Now you say comfort. When you're in exile, I don't want to get too comfortable, right? Don't get comfortable with alienation. The word comfort in the uh, Old Testament is translated, when it's translated into Greek, paraklesis. The same word that we read in the New Testament for the Holy Spirit. One who comes alongside to encourage, to console, to lift up the heart. And so uh, uh, the text here says, speak tenderly, speak to the heart of Jerusalem, words of encouragement, comfort, consolation. God has in mind not a single prophet to give a message to a community, but a community that speaks encouragement to itself, a community that literally comes into existence around words of encouragement, of consolation, of comfort. See, the prophet is saying, speak to Jerusalem. And God's not thinking of a missionary trip where you'd, you'd raise funds in Babylon and go back to Jerusalem and make this message known. The point is to speak to Jerusalem in Babylon. To form the community that could be called Jerusalem from the community that is known as Babylon by speaking these words. As you encourage one another with the very words of God, with the very narrative of God, with the very stories of God's encouragement throughout history, what's coming into existence is a prophetic community. A community that is beginning to perceive greatness very, very differently than the, the surrounding community in which it's placed, in which it finds itself. This is why, for me, I think Psalm 137 is so fascinating. You know, Psalm 137, it says, you know, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our harps. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Now, that's exactly where you ought to sing the, the Lord's song in a foreign land. The, the, the psalmist here is saying we've kind of had to give up the songs of Jerusalem, of Zion, which is exactly what shouldn't have happened. And you see the consequence of that as the psalm goes on and the psalmist prays for vengeance on Babylon and asks literally for the babies of Babylon to be destroyed in the same way that Jerusalem's was. See, this person is showing that their idea of greatness has been shaped by Babylonian brutality, by the very captors who are holding them. They have taken in their values. But were they to speak the words of the Lord, were they to sing the songs of Zion, 
then and only then they would know to pray for their enemies. They would know that the forgiveness, that the comfort, that the consolation and encouragement that God gives is for all people. And this is why the Apostle Paul says to the Christian church, become a prophetic community by your speech. He says, speaking the truth in love, we must, we must grow up in every way into him, into Jesus, who is the head. Speak the truth in love, he says to us. That doesn't mean be honest at every point, like I really don't like that dress. No, to speak the truth in love is to speak the truth about Jesus Christ. It's to speak the gospel into one another's lives. And it's as we do that that we grow up into the community of which Jesus is the head. So he says, let no evil talk come out of your mouth, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear, comfort one another, encourage one another, console. No community of Jesus Christ has ever been formed by criticism. The community that is shaped by encouragement and consolation is that community that will recognize the glory of the Lord when it appears. See, the good news of Jesus not only is the good news of a reset in our lives, it's the good news of a realignment to God's values so that we can recognize the greatness of God when it appears before us. Thirdly, let's talk about the substance of glory. Here we see that the good news of Jesus is to redefine. To redefine our sense of what our life is. The greatness of glory is not an easy thing to see. It's one thing to talk about it. It's one thing to use the words, but to actually recognize it in our own lives. This is not an easy thing to see. The words are given to us very clearly in, in verse 2. Listen to this. This is, the, this is the script, the narrative that Israel is to proclaim to one another. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her three things. This is Hebrew synonymous parallelism, which means all three of these things say the same thing. She has served her term. Her penalty is paid. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Judgment is over. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for you. It's done. It's finished. What a remarkable thing. Well, it's one thing to say that, but to believe that as the reality of my own life is another thing. Isaiah heard this. Remember, I told you he had been in the sanctuary of God. He had seen the glory of the Lord face to face. It was a terrifying moment for him. Actually, the hinges of the building are coming unglued. It's rocking. There's a kind of a cataclysmic earthquake, not unlike the kind of earthquake that's described in our very own text with every valley being lifted up and every mountain being leveled. And Isaiah got some sense of that in this room with the holiness of the Lord. And he said, oh, man, I am in big trouble because I know who I am. Because I know that I'm a man in exile. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And at this moment, there is dispatched from the throne of God, from the very heart of God, a coal in tongs that are applied to the lips of Isaiah with the words, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. He sees the glory of the Lord. And it turns out it's, it's not the purity of God's holiness 
What's most glorious about the Lord is that there is something inside of Him that will not be satisfied until everyone knows that they have been forgiven. He, he will spare no expense to communicate that truth, to redefine all of life by His grace. Isaiah, he's, he's in a problem that he cannot fix. <clears throat> when I was a, a young boy, actually one of my earliest memories, I um, well, was something of a scientist myself. And uh, I noticed we had a clothes dryer and a washing machine in the garage. And I noticed that the light was always on in the dryer. You know, you'd open the door and the light is on. And I wondered, it's kind of wasting electricity. You know, mom always tells me to turn off the lights and... And so I just, I just wondered if, if the light is always on when the door, if the door is closed also. And so I thought, well, there's only one way to find out, right? And so I, I inserted myself into this round circular space. And then I pulled the door closed. Now I had done, I should have done a little bit more thinking before I had done that. I should have remembered that the way that I got the door open was by pressing a pedal with my foot on the outside. And they didn't put a pedal on the inside. I was in a problem that I couldn't fix. I was in a very dangerous place. I was in exile. <laughs> I've been there before. I know it well now. Uh, but the good news is I had a mother who noticed that the house was strangely quiet. <laughs> As a firstborn child, it was very quiet. And she began to wonder, is everything okay? She began to hunt. She began to pursue. She went from room to room in search of her son. She searched every room in the house and there was no George. Took her out into the garage and she cried, George, where are you? Of course, I couldn't hear anything. <laughs> so she got really close. And then this, my mom's recollection is she hears, I'm in the machine. She's, What's that? We don't have a machine. We have a dryer, but no machine. Where are you? She figures it out and she presses the pedal. She releases me in a way that I never could have released myself. And I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for the rescue operation in my own garage. You've served your term. Your penalty is paid. You have received from the Lord double for all your sins. More, 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 more compensation than you could ever accrue through a lifetime of rebellion against God. It's been paid. You can say those words. But do those words redefine your life? God wants them to. Will you be able to see that redefinition? You won't see that redefinition in moral reformation. Oh, you may grow and change and love more people than you do today. The Spirit will do that in a person's life. But what you really see is not change in your life so much as a baby wrapped in linens, laid in a manger. You see, it's after a lifetime of living in a community that speaks of consolation that a man at the end of his life by the name of Simeon is able to recognize the grace of God for him in this child. When Jesus is brought to the temple for dedication. 
He's, we're told, looking for the consolation or the encouragement or the comfort of Israel. He's been looking his whole life. And now he says, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. For his eyes have seen his salvation. Or Anna, the 84-year-old prophetess, who in that same space at that same time sees this child wrapped in cloth to say, begin, and she began to praise God and to speak about this child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Because you can see that redemption only in this child. God has taken on human life. God has been born to a people in exile so that he can live the very life that you and I dream about but could never live. He's lived it for you. He's lived it for me and he gives it to us in his grace. This is the substance of God's glory, that God himself would live our lives for us, that we might live in union with him. James B. Torrance, a theologian, tells a story about a friend of his named Roland Walls who lives in a small monastic community outside of Edinburgh in Scotland called the Community of the Transfiguration. Roland Walls uh, um, uh, has uh, a little garden, and one day James B. was visiting Roland Walls, and he saw a sculpture he had never seen before in Walls' garden. It was a sculpture of two men who were kneeling down face-to-face to one another, and embracing each other, hands on each other's shoulders, heads interlocked. And James B. said, tell me about this sculpture. I don't think I've seen it here before. Roland Wall said, well, it's a funny story. Um, not long ago, I, I came one day into our chapel, which was empty except for one man, and he was crying, and he was on his knees. And I approached him and I introduced myself to him and I asked him for his story. And he said, well, you see, I've been expelled from my Christian community. It turns out he had grown up in a very strict uh, Christian community and um, he was gay. And this had become known and the community would have nothing more to do with him and sent him away. He was an exile. And Walls asked him to, to share what that felt like. And the man was gracious enough to pour out his woes, to pour out his sense of pain, his sense of frustration, his sense of shame, his sense of guilt. And Walls didn't know really what to say, but apparently he knew what to do. And he knelt down before this man and put his arms around him and embraced him. And these two men embodied an embrace that is for us a picture of grace. And, and so, as it turns out, this man was a sculptor. And he came back later on and he gave Roland a sculpture, this stone sculpture of these two men in embrace. And Roland said, tell me about the sculpture. And he says, well, it's, it's Adam being embraced by Jesus. It's the first Adam. Humanity gone awry. Being embraced by the last Adam. Humanity restored. 
And you cannot tell the difference between these two. They bear such a likeness to one another, except to note the nail-scarred hands of the second Adam. What was lost has been restored for you and for me in Jesus Christ. It's for this purpose that God Himself has been born as a child. We're not defined by our past. We're defined by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the substance of glory. Friends, let us practice Advent this year together, perhaps in a way we've never practiced it before. Let's acknowledge that our Savior has come to meet us in exile. Let's be honest about ourselves and say, yes, I am living in exile. But to scan the horizon, to know that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed even here in the space that I occupy. Let's participate actively in community. A community that tells each other the stories of God's encouragement. Great stories of the Bible. The great story of Advent itself. I'm trying to speak encouragement into your life right now, but it's not enough. God has called you to a community, a prophetic community. You need to be speaking that story as well. And you need to be hearing it from other people who know you and know what your week looked like even better than I do. You need to be in a community of people with whom you can share these stories, by whom you could be realigned to the love of God. And then finally, let us release ourselves into the embrace of our Savior, the child in whom we find the life that we could never live. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you call us to the experience of glory that is yours right now somewhere. You have prepared us to see the amazing revelation, the incomprehensible revelation of that glory in the Son of God, born among us, like us in all respects except sin, that we might be taken in His humanity up into the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is our life. Bless us as we tell these stories. Make us a prophetic community that as we share the story of Advent together, indeed the whole world, all people will see in us a community that invites, that invites all to know the grace of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.